Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. As we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Romans. Again, if you guys have been here the last month or so as we've been going through the first couple chapters, I want to take the time to just um, up front explain some words in more detail that we see in these chapters that aren't words that we would use in our everyday language just to make sure we understand what they mean. So today's word is propitiation. Repeat that. (laughs) For some reason, it's hard for me to say it. Um, So what that word means is it's the act of winning or regaining the favor of somebody by doing something that pleases them. So let me give you a hypothetical situation. Let's say that I borrow my in-law's car. And as I'm backing out of my driveway, I back into the neighbor's car who's parked across the street behind me. This is totally hypothetical, don't. (laughs) Anyways, and I cause damage to both vehicles. Now that would give both my neighbors and my in-laws a reason to have wrath towards me or extreme anger. But if I offered to pay for all the damages and take care of it all is propitiation, that would most likely regain the favor of all the parties involved because they wouldn't have a reason to be angry with me anymore, okay? So that's kind of the idea with that. So in the context of God's word, propitiation speaks of Jesus's life being given as a sacrifice at the cross to satisfy or appease the wrath and judgment of God that our sin deserved as we've been learning in the first couple chapters of Romans. Basically, we've lost the favor of God because of our sin against him and our sin against others, our rebellion against him. But through faith in Jesus and what he did for us at the cross, we can regain the favor of God. That's propitiation, all right? And so in the first two chapters of Romans, we saw Paul establish why propitiation is necessary for all of humanity. And today we're gonna see him reiterate that in Romans 3, along with the fact that there's nothing we can do in our own power to earn back God's favor. And as such, God chose to intervene by creating a suitable propitiation of his own doing so that things could be made right between him and us and we could regain his favor in our lives. That's how much God loves you. He did that himself. And that's where we're gonna pick it up in Romans 3. So let me pray really quick and we will go through this whole chapter. Lord God, Uh, Again, we just want to settle our hearts, settle our minds. We can come in here with all sorts of things we're thinking about. Our lives are busy. We have lots that needs to be done. Some of us are going through hard things that are hard to get. It's hard to get our minds off them. But Lord, here's the reality. You're sovereign in control of everything. And as your children, that means because of what you've told us in your word, we really truly don't have to worry about any of it. We can instead choose to cast those cares to you knowing you care for us. And at this time, we want to come here and give you our undivided attention because maybe you even have something to say to us regarding those things that'll bring us peace or comfort or direction. And we don't wanna miss out on that. As Peter said, you have the words of life. You, you have the very words that help us know how to live and experience everything we're looking for in life. So we don't want to miss any of those words. 
So prepare us for what it is you want to say, and may we hear it, and as we learned last week, not only hear it, but be a doer of it and leaving here and implementing it in our life so we can experience the blessedness or the happiness you intend for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse one, Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So if you were here last week, you saw that Paul just got done explaining in Romans 2 that possessing the law or the word of God or being, being circumcised were not enough in themselves to make anyone righteous with God, which is something that the Jews were guilty of thinking. And Paul knew a Jew might ask, well, if we're considered the same as everyone else, if we're on the same playing field as far as, you know, having to receive righteousness through faith in Jesus, what is the benefit of being God's chosen people? You know, because the Israelites were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And it's like a, a reasonable question. It's like, well, what's the benefit then? What's the advantage of that? And Paul answers that question in verse two, uh, when he says much every way, he's like, well, actually there's a lot of advantages. And he kind of points out the main one in that, well, God gave you his word. And if he's given you his word, you don't have to wonder who he is. You can know who he is. You can know his plan for you. And ultimately that plan included you understanding that you're a sinner and you need to be saved of your sin. And he sent somebody to do that, Jesus Christ. That, that, that's the main benefit. And then as we go through Romans, we're gonna see in Romans 9 that he continues to expound on the additional advantages the Jewish people had as being God's chosen people. And he goes on in verse three, and it says, but if some were unfaithful, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So even though the majority of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus or God's Messiah when he came, or they missed the main point of God's word, if you will, that didn't in any way nullify God's faithfulness to keep his word by offering salvation to them, as verse three says. This unbelief of the Jews regarding the Messiah actually being one of those very things discussed in the Old Testament. If you wanna see a place for that, we're not gonna go there, but Isaiah 53. But it's one of those very things the Old Testament mentioned that later on proved to be true when the Jews actually did reject Jesus as God's savior. And hence, that rejection actually validated God's word. It didn't nullify it, okay? And Jesus's finished work on the cross, this is important for us to remember it offers a way for anyone and everyone to be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God. And that great work that God accomplished in doing that is never in vain or futile or nullified, if you will, just because some people choose not to accept that free gift or reject it. It doesn't change the fact that God was still faithful to do what he said he's gonna do. And that, that gift is available for anyone that wants it, okay? And so that's important to understand. And in addition to that, even though the Jews were missing the big picture of the gospel, God's faithfulness was still very much shown in their lives as they benefited all throughout history from practically following God's law or God's commandments to them. 
you look at the Jewish people historically as a race, they've always been physically healthy because of the hygienic and dietary restrictions under the law. And they've always been a, a, a monetarily prosperous people because of the financial principles giving under God's word. Basically, everything God says in his word has and will always prove to be true. And a person's faithlessness to listen to God's word in no way negates his faithfulness to keep it, as verse three tells us. And his judgments are always gonna be found to be justified, as verse four says, because of that, okay? Theologian Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Paul's quote in verse four. He said, it is a strange Strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change his word like himself is immutable or unable to change. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men. And, and that's a very important concept for us to grasp that God is always right. Because when we have issues or difficulties in life, maybe you've noticed this, I, we can have a tendency to cast blame on other people or other things as the reason for our problems when a lot of the time those problems are actually originating from somewhere within us. And maybe that's even just not that you haven't been wronged because you have been wronged, but a lot of God's word is to help is telling us or trying to help us understand how to respond a correct way to being wronged so we don't have to face the negative repercussions of responding the wrong way. Okay? And we one of those people that we can often blame when we're facing some sort of hard thing or difficulty in our life is God himself. The difference being that God is never the reason for our problems is Paul's saying here, all right? When I say things like, well, I've been praying, but God hasn't been answering my prayers. Really? Okay, well, 1 John 5, 14 through 15 tells us, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we ask, make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Sometimes we might say, I am reading God's word or I'm listening to it at church and I'm just getting nothing out of it. All right, well, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, the rain and snow come down from heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it'll prosper everywhere I send it. Maybe you might've heard someone say, I'm doing the things God says to do to draw near to him, but I just don't feel like he's close to me. Well, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Maybe you've said before, I don't feel like God is being good to me in the situation I'm facing. Well, Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And so those examples I'm, I'm giving you, statements that you know I've heard people say, most, most certainly I've made before, 
are directly in conflict with promises God has made us in his word. And therefore, somebody's lying. And I can tell you right now, it's not God, okay? And if we try to keep arrogantly passing the blame to him or anyone or anything else instead of humbly acknowledging that the real problem is probably somewhere with us, then we're never even looking to God or giving him a chance to help us deal with those problems like he wants to. So if I don't feel like God's being faithful to keep his word to me, the first step is to combat that lie with the truth of what his word actually says and then ask him to show me what it is that I'm not getting or I'm not seeing and then make sure that I'm ready to receive the answer he wants to give me even if it's not the answer I really want to hear, okay? Understanding and knowing that his ways aren't always gonna be the same as mine as Isaiah 55, eight through nine says, but just because they're not the same as what I wanna hear, the same answer, the answer I wanna get, it will be better always because that's all God can do because he's always good, amen? All right, so God's always right. He's telling them whether they're faithful to listen to him or not. That's a different story, but he's always right. Verse five, it says, but if our unrighteousness or the ideas are disobedience to God serves to show the righteousness of God or helps to prove how right God is, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us or the idea is, isn't it then unfair for God to punish us for disobeying him? I speak in a human way. The idea being that a human would be the only one crazy enough to, to, to question God's judgment. So Paul here, what he's, what he's doing is he's addressing, again, what he would anticipate as an argument by some people that would say that, okay, well, since God's in control of everything, even when I sin, that means that God is in control and he's still gonna work that sin for his plan. So if that's the case, how can he justly judge me for doing something that he's actually gonna end up using for good, all right? Like, let's think of it this way. This would be like Judas saying to God, Lord, I know I betrayed Jesus, but used it for good. In fact, my my sin was responsible for getting Jesus to the cross. My actions even fulfilled the scriptures. Do I really deserve to be judged for that? And Paul's response to that type of argument in verse six is by no means or God forbid, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Or the idea is that, well, if sin ultimately leads to good, shouldn't we just sin all the more? He's asking rhetorical questions. The answer to this is no. And he goes on to say, um, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul's saying in verse six that if God was not consistently fair in judging all sin entirely or making sure that all evil is dealt with justly so that it's never considered acceptable, then he wouldn't be qualified to judge humanity at all. He'd be impartial. So he has to be all or nothing. God's consistent righteous judgment for our sin being one of the ways he glorifies himself because it shows that he is always just and fair. So the answer he would give to Judas would be like, well, yeah, God ultimately used your evil as a part of accomplishing his good plan, 
but you're still guilty of sin. There was no basically good intention or motive behind his actions, and therefore it's of no credit to him that God brought good from those evil actions, and therefore he still deserves to be judged accordingly. Guys understand that? And for anyone that would try to use God's sovereignty as an excuse to willfully sin, some people even falsely accusing Paul and other believers of endorsing that bad theology, apparently, they surely deserve the condemnation their sin justly, justly will receive, as verse eight says. This showing the extremity of the depravity of men that people would twist the good news of God forgiving us of our sin is a means to justify continuing on in the very thing that God is trying to save us from because he knows it's harming us and harming others. Amen? So he says in verse nine, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under, the idea is a slave to sin. Paul reiterating here that a Jew's no more right with God than anyone else in the world just because they're Jewish. You know, whatever excuse one might have for thinking that they don't need God to be right or to be a good person or to save them from their sin, Jew or Gentile, Paul has successfully confronted and refuted those arguments in Romans 1, 2, and now 3. Basically, we're all slaves to sin, as verse 9 says. And Paul's just reiterating what God had already told everyone in the Old Testament as he goes on to say in verse 10, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. There has never been a single human being that has lived on this earth that has lived a completely righteous or right life before God, except Jesus Christ, which proves that even though he was 100% fully man, he must have been 100% fully God too, because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to live that righteous life according to this verse, okay? So none's righteous, no, not one. He goes on to verse 11, he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, some might argue with that. They might say, well, isn't that religion? Isn't that what religion is? Religion is trying to seek God. And my answer to that would be, well, if people initiate the search for God, then they truly aren't seeking the one and only true God who's already made himself known to us. If you guys were with, our, in, in, with us in our study in Acts, if you guys remember in Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, a place where there's all these shrines to all these different gods. And he, he goes to this place, the Areopagus, where all the philosophers are to talk to them. And he says, you know, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one that, I'm telling you about, or basically you're initiating, you're trying to worship this God that's based off of who you want him to be. Actually, you don't need to guess because he's made himself known and this is who he is. And all the religions in the world, apart from Christianity, that's what they're doing. They're trying to make God who they want or they're, they're, the, the heart behind them is selfish motives in that typically religion is self-seeking instead of God-seeking, and what I mean by that is people are looking to a God to try to alleviate guilt in their lives or be recognized by others for their righteousness or seeking peace in their lives or wanting to exalt themselves in being equal with God in mind, body, or soul. So man-made religion is very different than what the Bible teaches us. 
all right? We didn't seek God. He sought us in sending his son to live on this earth so we could know who he is and we could have a relationship with him through faith in his son who died so we could be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to him, all right? That's who God is. Verse 12, and it says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we're all incapable of doing good apart from God because even in the good things we try to do, they typically have selfish motives like wanting to be acknowledged by others or trying to make up for wrongs we have done or trying to make ourselves feel better for the guilt we have or for karma, hoping that if I do something good, then something good will happen to me. They're not purely for the benefit of others, which can only come with God in your life. And because our motives are impure, our best deeds are, as verse 12 says, worthless. The Greek word there basically meaning rotten fruit, which is good for nothing. He goes on to say in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive or mankind likes to lie and be deceitful. Isn't that easy to see in the media nowadays? All around us. It says the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood or murder and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known or mankind as a whole likes to argue and disagree. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18, giving the reason for all the sinfulness of mankind in that every act of rebellion against God comes from a lack of respect for him. Paul quoting multiple Psalms and Isaiah 59 and verses 10 through 18 where God gives a pretty bleak prognosis regarding humanity. Paul using the word of God to describe, if you notice this, the depravity of sinfulness of mankind from head to toe, every single bit of us. And it's not just a description of bad people, but rather all people, the proof of sin being our actions, all right? And the reality being that it shouldn't really surprise us when people do bad things, but it's probably the bigger surprise when people actually do good things in that this is humanity as a whole. Verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law, that would be God's word says, it speaks to those who are under the law or it tells us that we are guilty of so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God or it takes away anyone's excuse that they're not sinful against God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight or we could never justify ourselves before God by trying to follow all of God's word. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin or the purpose of the law being to show that we're sinners in need of a savior. So Paul here, he's going on to say that the law itself doesn't save us. It actually condemns us. It makes our sin known to us and it proves all humanity is guilty of sin against God. Jesus elaborating on that on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, it's not just your actions that are sinful, it's actually your thoughts that are sinful in themselves because you think about these things and that's wrong, even if you're not carrying it out. So since our works can't make us completely right before God, which is bad news, Paul goes on now to give us the good news or how we can be made right with God. And in the following verses, we're gonna see Paul introduce us to the doctrine of justification, 
right? Write that down if you want, because I'm going to give you some points about justification being a legal term, meaning to show that something has been made right. And in the context of God's word, it's much more than just being pardoned of our sins, so we're right with God, but God, our justification that we receive through Jesus Christ involves God forgiving us and declaring us right in such a way that it's, maybe you've heard this before, just as if you had no sin, okay? And the following verses, we're gonna see Paul give us six principles of justification that we've received through our faith in Jesus. So you might wanna write these down. Starting verse one, it says, but, anytime you see a but in the Bible, you should circle it. Okay, not literal, but, but the word but. Um, because there's something good, most likely, that comes after that. So he says, but now, and this is where he transitions from the judgment we deserve to the justification we've received through faith in Jesus. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the first principle I wanna give you regarding justification is that it is apart from the law. Paul's early made it clear that everyone is guilty of breaking God's law to some extent and that nobody is capable of obeying it completely. So therefore, we're all unrighteous or not right with God and unable to justify ourselves according to his law and therefore subject to the penalty associated with our sin, which is death according to Romans 6.23. There being nothing we can do in our own power or efforts to change that. The law cannot save us, but rather it proves that you and I are sinners that can't save ourselves and in need of somebody to save us. But God has told us about a righteousness that is available to you and me despite our sin, a righteousness apart from the law, as verse 21 says. The idea being it's not supplementing where you fall short in following God's law, but rather it's offered to you by God completely apart from your attempt to follow God's word. The gospel in essence being God's plan to save us from our sin apart from any effort of our own doing, which is good news since we don't deserve or can never earn our way to being right with him. Amen? And it isn't new news, but rather the law and the prophets bear witness to it, as verse 21 says, or God foretold of this plan from the very beginning that he was gonna need to save us and that he would. And that leads to the second principle. Justification comes through faith in Jesus, all right? Second principle, justification comes through faith in Jesus. Whereas we can't be justified by trying to follow the law of God, we can have justification through faith in the Son of God, as verse 22 says. Faith not being a work in itself, it's just a means through which God gives us his gift of salvation. If somebody was to give me a gift, or if I was to give you a gift, the reality is the only thing I can do is choose to accept it in faith that I'm gonna receive what is being offered to me. There's no work or effort on my part, no earning or meriting that gift, okay? Theologian William Newell had this to say about faith. But faith is not trusting or expecting God to do something, but relying on his testimony concerning the person of Christ as his son in the work of Christ for us on the cross. After saving faith, the life of trust begins. Trust is always looking forward to what God will do, 
but faith sees that what God says has been done and believes God's word, having the conviction that it is true and true for ourselves. And that faith must be specifically in Jesus Christ. As James tells us that even the demons believe in God in James 2, 19, and they're not saved and they're not justified. They're not gonna be in heaven. So it isn't enough for a person to say, I simply believe in God. In order to receive the righteousness offered to us by God or to be right with God, one must believe in the only truly righteous person to ever walk on this earth, and that's Jesus Christ. Because our justification is found in him and the work he did for you on the cross. And that leads to the third principle of justification. Justification is available for all people, okay? Justification is available for all people. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, hipster or hippie, dark-skinned, light-skinned, Mexican or American. It makes no difference to God as he created and loves everyone equally. And as it says in verse 22, this gift of being right with God can be received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And don't make the mistake of thinking that a sinner no matter how bad their sin is, is unsavable because we need to be saved because of our sin. So no matter what is going on in somebody's life, the first thing they need to do is understand they need Jesus to save them. And then when he comes into our life, he starts the cleaning process of helping us understand what's right and wrong and helping us live in that rightness. Amen? All right. And why is justification available to all people? Because as Paul goes on to say, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul reiterating, we're all guilty of sin, which is why we all need help from God to be justified. Paul giving us a key piece of information that'll help us recognize the sin in our lives in verse 23, in that rather than comparing ourselves to others, the standard we should be comparing ourselves to when we're talking about what's good and what's bad is God. That's whose glory you should be looking at because he is completely righteous or does nothing wrong. So that's what's required of us to have a relationship with him because if we are guilty of doing anything wrong, he has to justly judge it. He can't be in the presence of it. How many of you guys played sports in like at some point in your life? Do you guys, and be honest here, do you, you guys remember sizing up the competition? Like you walk out on the basketball court and you're like, whoa, we're gonna get killed. That, that guy's huge. Or like the football field, there's that guy that stuck out. When, when I was playing sports, we used to play Douglas High School and there was this guy, you guys might have heard of him, his name was Troy Polamalu. And it was just like, oh man. I mean, this like, the, you're sizing yourself up to this guy and you're just like, we don't have a chance, all right? And in much the same way, when we compare ourselves to the Lord in his light, you're gonna clearly see, like verse 23 says, you fall short of the glory of God. And that's the right person that you should be sizing yourself up again when you're trying to say, well, am I good or bad? That's the standard, okay? And it says in verse 24, and are justified by his grace. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former 
sins. So Paul here gives us the fourth principle of justification. Justification is by God's grace alone. Justification is by God's grace alone. Paul points out in Romans a universal problem that every person is guilty of sin. And here he points out a universal solution that we can all be justified of our sin in verse 24. The Greek word used there for justified being a verb in the present tense, or it's speaking of an action that's continually happening through your faith in Jesus. And why is that important? Well, as we all know, once we're saved, we never do anything wrong again. Is that true? No, right? We still mess up. We still fall short. We talked about this last week. You're looking for a perfect church? Good luck. Because as soon as you walk in the door, it just got more imperfect. We're just a bunch of imperfect people that are following a perfect God who's making us perfect, right? And so here's the thing. When we mess up, sometimes we feel like, well, I've blown it with God. Like somehow I've voided his promises or I've voided his grace and there's no way I'm gonna receive that. And the answer according to this is not so. You were justified when you placed your faith in Jesus originally, but the, as you believe in Jesus Christ, you're now and every day until you're with him continually being justified and declared righteous before God, amen? And this justification is offered as a gift by God's grace. You've heard me say it before, grace is undeserved, unearned, and unmerited favor. So we don't deserve to be justified. We could never earn justification ourselves, and we've done nothing to merit that is a gift from God, but rather God offers it to us freely, even though it cost him greatly. And that leads to the fifth principle I want you to note. Justification comes at a huge cost. Justification comes at a huge cost, as it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, as verse 24 says. Redemption meaning to buy something back. And the way it was used in the Greek was you would use that, this word that's used for redemption to speak of uh, prisoners of war that would be purchased at a price to be freed or for somebody that was in slavery, you'd pay a price to set them free of that slavery. Humanity's problem being that we're all slaves to sin, as verse nine says, and therefore there was a cost to free us from that sin, the wages or cost of sin being death, as we discussed earlier. And as such, Jesus bought you with his life by willingly dying on the cross to pay the required wage for our sins. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 tells us, you do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. And because the cost of all of our sins has already been paid, God truly can offer justification freely as a gift to you. The justification of our sins only being possible through faith in Jesus because he is the one who has redeemed us. Also, the righteousness God has offered us can only be found in Jesus who lived, lived a perfectly sinless life on this earth, as we already discussed, and therefore was put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as verse 25 says, his death being a propitiation or suitable substitute sacrifice for our sin, as Jesus, who did not sin, was able to take the judgment and wrath our sin deserved upon himself so God could show his righteousness, as verse 25 says, in dealing with our sins just, justly 
while at the same time sparing those who deserved the judgment. Amen for that. And God put his one and only son forward, as verse 25 says, meaning that it was God's plan to sacrifice his son for you. Really, for the be- from the beginning, as verse 25 says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, or basically God, knowing what he was gonna do in the future, temporarily passed over or covered the sins of the Old Testament believers who placed their faith in the coming Messiah as a sort of IOU or promissory note, knowing that one day their sins would in fact be fully paid for when Jesus died for him on the cross. Paul goes on to say in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this leads to the sixth and final principle of justification I want you to note. Justification solves a divine dilemma. Justification solves a divine dilemma in that God loves us deeply, but also sees our sinful actions clearly. God loves us deeply, but he also sees your sin clearly. And if God said, well, I love him so much, I'm just gonna forget about that sin. I'm just gonna sweep it under the rug. Then he no longer would be just. And so the only solution was the cross where God shows us his rightness or his righteousness and that he offers us justification or to be made just like we never sinned through faith in his son, Jesus, and is just while doing so in that the righteous penalty that our sins deserved have been paid for in full by Jesus's death. Theologian Adam Clark had this to say about this verse. He says, here we learn that God designed to give the most evident displays of both his justice and mercy, of his justice in requiring a sacrifice and absolutely refusing to give salvation to a lost world in any other way, and of his mercy in providing the sacrifice which his justice required. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. The gospel as explained by Paul here leaves us no room for boasting or bragging about how good of Christians we are because we've done nothing And God has done absolutely everything to save us. All we can do is receive that free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the savior and you and me are just the savies, okay? It says, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith or the Jews and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentiles. Paul's going on to make it clear that we aren't justified through faith and by our works of the law, all right? But rather by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, as verse 28 says. And some people argue, well, doesn't that contradict what James says in chapter two, where he's talking about how faith without works is dead? And that's not the case because James is simply expounding on what true saving faith looks like in a person's life. James pointing out that the way you believe will affect the way you behave. If you have true faith, it'll show in your actions, all right? And justification through faith is available to all people, Jew and Gentile alike, because there's one God 
as verse says, and if there's one God that created all of us, then that means we all answered him, or he's the God of all. It says in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul here again, he's answering a question that he would expect to receive from somebody in that if the law doesn't make us right with God, then what's the point of it? Some maybe even accusing him of being somebody that invalidates the law by saying that, well, justification is received apart from it. But Paul says that's not the case at all. Since the point of the law is to show you your need to be saved from your sin or to reveal your need for a savior who in fact is Jesus, Paul talks about that in Galatians 3, that when we place our faith in Jesus, the law is actually being fulfilled or it's accomplishing the purpose which God gave it for, to direct you to the person you need to go to to be saved. And that's Jesus. And in addition to Romans 4, we're gonna see Paul explain how the law or God's word actually is only validated by the gospel or the New Testament because throughout the whole entire Old Testament, there's this consistent theme of being saved by faith and faith alone. And Paul's gonna reiterate that as we go into this next chapter. Amen? Look at that, I got through with that whole thing early. All right, well, I'm gonna have the worship team come up here and I just wanna leave you with a practical example of this justification. So in our society, we have a legal obligation to follow the law, all right? And as long as we do what it says is right, you're always gonna be able to justify yourself if your actions ever come into question, right? That's a given. Do you guys agree with me? If you're living according to the law or the standards that society sets and somebody wants to question you on your behavior, as long as you can sit there and say, well, I haven't done anything wrong according to the law or whatnot, you're gonna be justified, right? Even if they don't think you are, practically you are justified. But if you break the law and you're found guilty of not doing what's right because you've, you are, you're found guilty of not doing what's right because you've lost your righteousness according to the law, you're then subject to the penalty associated with the crime you committed. Would you guys agree with that? If you break the law, that means you've lost your righteousness, you've lost your ability to justify yourself, and there's a penalty associated that you're responsible for paying. Would you agree? Well, that's where we find ourselves in this situation with God's law. But let's say the judge pardoned you apart from the law, or basically, even though you broke it, said, no, you don't have to face the penalty for it. Now, the problem with that is that could be seen as unjust by people around you that knew you were guilty of a crime, you were found guilty, you were sentenced to a punishment, but somehow the judge just let you off, especially the people that maybe your crime affected in a negative way, that wouldn't settle well with them, right? So let's say that that judge decided instead to take your place. Instead of just letting you off the hook, he said, okay, here's the thing. You're guilty. Here's the crime you committed. Here's the punishment that fits that crime. But instead of making you endure that punishment, I'm going to get off my bench. I'm going to take your place. And therefore, I'll satisfy that punishment. I'll, 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 I'll endure that punishment for you so that it's satisfied and you can be found righteous or just again because I'm taking the punishment that your sin deserves. Now, has that ever happened in the history of the world? I mean, I can honestly say that I've never heard of it, 
But if it has, it would really surprise me because that sounds pretty absurd. Would you agree? So as absurd as that is, think of the reality of what God's done for us. Because he's come off his bench in heaven and come down willingly to take the punishment that our sin deserved. I mean, if you think of Romans 1, 2, and 3 and how Paul has made it clear how wicked and evil we are compared to how perfect God is, that only makes that idea even more absurd. But this is what the Lord did. And Jesus being equal with God, meaning that God willingly became the object of his own justified wrath and judgment so you and me wouldn't have to, but he could instead offer us justification through faith in him. Isn't that crazy? That's right. And it makes you really understand, like when John was saying in 1 John 3, 1, see how much very see how very much our father loves us. If you really understand the good news, if you understand the gospel, if you understand this principle of justification, that really starts to show you a deeper understanding or the magnitude of how much God must love you that he was willing to do that for you. And it should, as we already looked at in Romans, that kindness, that love should draw us to him, should draw us to repentance. It should draw us from the very things that are destroying us, the sinful things that he tells us not to do because he only wants us to be blessed. He wants us to be happy as we talked about last week. To him who has the words of life, who made you to know him so he could lead you through this life into all of the, the good, pleasing, and perfect things he has for you. And that's something we never, ever want to lose sight of. We never want to grow dull to this good news, to what it is that God has done for us. Because as it tells us in John 15, 13, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for their friends. In this world, how much you, how much, how valuable something is, is shown by how much somebody's willing to pay for it, what they're willing to give for it. Well, God said that you were so valuable to him that he was willing to give his son for you and me. Nobody made him do it. As established here, we weren't looking for him to do it. We were lost in our sin and he came and found us and did everything needed so that we could know him. That is crazy love, as Robert pointed out earlier. It makes no sense. It's absurd. But that's the reality of the gospel. So we're going to worship the Lord now because he's worthy of worship for that, among many other things in our lives. And we're going to have the communion elements out so that we can remember his sacrifice on the cross. So while we're worshiping this first song, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Come up and get the communion elements and then hold on to them. And let's take communion together as a family today. And just spend that time during this first worship, worship song really 
thinking about what it is that God has done for you, what he saved you from, that great cost that was given for you and just thanking him for it. And then we'll acknowledge it together as we do communion together. So this act of communion is something that Jesus established the night before he was going to be crucified with his disciples where he broke bread and gave it to them and said, do this in um, remembrance of me, this, that this was symbolic of his body that was going to be broken on the cross to satisfy the wrath and judgment as we talked about today uh, of our sins. And he took the, uh, the wine and, or this juice and said that that represented his blood that was going to be spilled that would basically atone for the sins of mankind. And he told them, do this often. Like, do, do this in remembrance of me so that, as I was talking about earlier, you, you, you don't become in desensitized or insensitive to what it is that's been done for you. Because really everything in our relationship with God is wrapped up at the cross. That's where our confidence comes from in knowing that we're forgiven of our sin We've been freed from it. We're no longer slaves to it. We're no longer in bondage to it, that we have victory in Christ. We're more than conquerors, as we're gonna see in Romans 8. He's already won this life for us. So no matter what hard thing it feels like we're facing, he's already won it. All these promises, that he's working all things for the good of those that love him or are called according to his purposes, that you can always expect good in anything you're facing, not that all things are good, but good will come from it. These promises are based on what Jesus has done for you, not how you're doing or how you're not doing. You're justified through your faith in Jesus. And so as such, this, this doing this in remembrance of God, this is, this is something only for believers. Paul actually warns us not to take communion in an unworthy manner. And my encouragement to you is if you're somebody that is not a disciple of Jesus, somebody that has not repented of your sin and placed your faith in him to save you from it, you shouldn't do this because this is giving worth acknowledging the great sacrifice that he made. And if you truly are doing that, then you'll be saved. And that's the better option, actually, <laughs> is to receive that free gift that God is offering you right here and now and then take communion to acknowledge the significance of it. Amen? So I'm going to go ahead and pray for the bread that represents his body, and then we'll take it together, and I'll do the same for the juice that represents his blood. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for your body that was broken to us. When, for us, when we think of everything you went through leading up to the cross, Lord, it's, it's horrific. There's nothing pretty about it. It's in, the, in this... The thing is, it's even more graphic, I'm sure, than we can even kind of fathom in our minds. But Lord, that was a picture or that spoke of the wrath of God that Paul talked about and told us about in Romans 1 that we justly deserve. That was reflective of the judgment our sin deserved that he talked about in Romans 2. There's nothing pretty about sin and the devastation it causes. We've all experienced that to some degree and we see it in the world all around us. But you, Jesus, took upon yourself, you who had no sin, 
took the wrath and judgment that our sin deserved upon yourself, allowed your body to be broken willingly, paying that wage or that just penalty our sin deserves so we didn't have to. And we acknowledge it was a great cost and we are forever as an eternally grateful for it, Lord. So we take this bread in remembrance of your body that you freely gave to satisfy the wrath and judgment our sin deserved. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and eat the bread. Lord, we hold this cup of juice and we give worth to your blood that was spilled for us. We see in the Old Testament that all the sacrifices that were required constantly to continually cover over the sins of people, Lord, because the blood of bulls and, and goats, as your word says, it wasn't enough. That wasn't, it wasn't a, 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 a adequate sacrifice to pay the price for all the sins of mankind. It was you, Jesus, the son of God, the perfect sacrifice. It spoke of the perfect sacrifice that was coming, the greatest sacrifice that God would come down from his throne and, and come and live amongst us as a human, as his creation, with his creation, fully God and fully man, and live a perfectly right life with no sin of your own so that you could become the propitiation or you could take our sin upon yourself and pay the penalty for it and satisfy the just anger and judgment of God the Father so that our sins could be forgiven and paid for in full and we could receive the favor of God for all eternity. Your blood has accomplished so much for us, Lord, and we give it worth right now because we never could have done it on our, on our own. Go ahead and drink the cup. Lord God, we thank you so much for saving us. We stand here today justified, just as if we had no sin because of you, by your grace, because of Jesus and what he did for us and the work he completed in full on the cross. And we're yours for all eternity. And we're so thankful for that. So may we praise you with that vein of thought in our heads, Lord, and help us understand to an even greater degree this love you have for us that's clearly been demonstrated by what you've done for us, Lord, and what you continue to do every day. In Jesus' name, amen.